Thank you for listening to a student ministry sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about the student ministry or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's student ministry sermon. So you ever been part of one of those moments that you knew was special? Like even while it's happening, you can tell, like not only will you never forget being here, but you can picture yourself telling the story sometime later on. And when you picture yourself telling the story, you imagine that at some point you will get to say the words, I was there. We love being able to say the words, I was there, about big moments in our lives. Sometimes these are sort of big big national moments. They might be like sad moments. I was there in New York when the towers went down. Or good moments. I was there in D.C. when the president was sworn in. Or maybe they're a little closer to home, sort of cultural things that not quite as big, but nevertheless, they may feel big at the time. I was there when the news broke that Zane is leaving One Direction. We love to say this about sports. I was there in Arizona when the the Patriots beat the Seahawks to win the Super Bowl. Or I was there when the Webb City Cardinals high school football team won the state championship in 2014 and in 2013. And you get the point. We like to be able to say, I was there. And sometimes I think about the same thing with the story of Jesus. Now, I wasn't there. But I wonder, what would it have been like to be there? To be able to say, I was there. When Jesus uh, calmed the sea, it was like there was this storm in the water, and he got up in the boat, and he started talking to it, and we thought it was weird, and then it stopped, and we thought it was even weirder. What would it have been like to be there when Jesus took five loaves and two fish and somehow fed 5,000 people with it? What would it have been like to say, I was there when Jesus touched a leper, and not only did Jesus not get sick, but the guy got well. He was healed. What would it be like to be able to say in Jesus' story, I was there? And I think especially for as long as I've been aware of the story of Jesus, like most who know the story, I imagine many of you, you find yourself fascinated by the end, by the final moments of Jesus' life. The last week, or really just the last three or four days, and I've long wondered what would it have been like to be there in the final moments of Jesus' life. I mean, where would I be in the story? I wonder, would I be one of his disciples, one of his close followers? Would I be one of the Pharisees, the religious leaders that wasn't very happy with him? Would I be one of the children, just sort of trying to figure out what's going on? Or would I be one of the thousands of of pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims, who would travel from far away to come to the city for their, their version of the 4th of July celebration? And whoever I might have been, whichever role I might have played, whatever character I would have been, what would I be doing? What would I have been thinking? What would I think about Jesus Would I like this person, Jesus? Would I say with those on Sunday who watched him ride into the city, Hosanna, blessed is the son of David, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord? Or would I have thought Jesus was a problem? Would I have shouted with the crowds on Friday while Jesus stood before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, crucify him? And whoever I turned out to be, and whatever I turned out to say, whatever I was thinking and doing, how would I describe these events later on? What kind of words would I use? Well, I mean, it was scary, it was confusing, it was exciting, it was intense. Yeah, probably all of those. And in addition, dark. The final days of Jesus' life were indeed dark days. Darkness. For many of us, our first fear. 
I have a little sister who's about 10 years younger than me, and a while back I heard her telling this story. She was telling some of us this story about uh, growing up, she was afraid of this one room in our house. And we had a fairly small house, but you walk in, you're in the living room, and if you keep going straight, you go through the dining room into the kitchen, and there's kind of bedrooms off to the sides. And there was this small, like, utility closet just off the kitchen. It was where the washer and dryer were, where the pantry was with food. And it was kind of a weird, creepy, freaky sort of room. You know, it was just always dark back there, so it was a little bit intense. Even if the light was on in the kitchen, you walk into the kitchen, you can see. But when you look back into this, this utility room, there's this small hallway, and it's dark. You can't see what's back there. And she was always afraid to go back there because she was afraid of the dark. And she was telling the story, and she talked about how one time I was kind of helping her process this, helping her deal with her fear. And she said that what I said to her was, you know, Cassandra, it's not actually the darkness that you're afraid of. It's what might be in the darkness that's causing your fear. And she told that story, and I'm thinking to myself, what a horrible thing to say to a little girl who's afraid. But nonetheless, it was, of course, true. What's in the darkness? That's the question. What would we find if we looked into the darkness of Jesus' final days? Well, let's take it one day at a time, starting with Thursday. We'll pick up the story when Jesus and his followers are having a meal at a table, kind of like this one, maybe a little lower, and they would be leaning up against the table and telling their story. It was a Passover meal, which was, again, their 4th of July. It was a celebration of the moment when God had liberated them as a people, and it was an anticipation, hoping that God would liberate them again. And so they take this meal, and all the different drinks and foods mean different things. And and after this meal, uh, they leave, and they go to a place called Gethsemane. I don't know if you've heard of this place before, but it's, it's a field of olive trees just outside the city of Jerusalem. It's the kind of place that just puts you in a reflective mood, you know what I mean? You know, if you walk along the beach when the, when the ocean water's hitting the sides, it's hard not to just sort of relax. When you're in the mountains, it's hard not to feel small. When you're in Gethsemane, it's hard not to think, hard not to pray. Jesus had come here many times. This wasn't a new thing. Uh, It was his favorite place to pray when he was near Jerusalem. But none of the other times were like this. This one was different. This time, Jesus was in anguish. Picture the scene. He he rolls up with 11 of his disciples, and he posts up eight of them around the perimeter to keep watch in case of what might happen next. And he takes his other three, the, the ones who were his closest friends, and he takes them a bit further in with him. We're not really quite sure. It seems like he just didn't want to be alone. And then he sets them up, and he himself goes a little bit further, and then he falls down to the ground on his knees, and he begs God for another way. But did you know that? Did you know that Jesus asked God if he could please not die on the cross? That Jesus knows what it looks like to see what God wants from me and to say, God, let me out of this. Some of you know what that's like, and if you don't know what that's like, you know what it's like to watch your friends who make big commitments to the Lord, maybe in the summertime or at some event or when they have some dramatic experience and, and they make a big commitment and then they turn around and walk all over it and you look at that maybe and I sometimes look at those things and I go, come on, why don't you step up? I think Jesus would look at them and say, I know what it's like because I've, I've been there. I've been there in that moment when you see what God wants from you and you say to him, please, can we figure something else out? But Jesus is, he's afraid. He, he's stressed. He, he is, he is, so he's, he's so anxious at this point that he's actually sweating drops of blood. It's a real thing. Doctors call it hematidrosis. It's a condition where you actually start to bleed out your, your pores. It usually the blood comes out your fingernails and across your forehead. And it only happens in the most extreme forms of anguish. And it's no surprise that it happens here. I mean, Jesus knows that he's about to die a brutal death. 
So three times he says, God, is there another way? And three times God says nothing, which means no. And then three times Jesus says, not my will but yours be done. Gethsemane was not a place of failure on Jesus' part at all, but it was a place of darkness, the darkness of fear. And then Judas, as soon as I say his name, you know what I'm talking about, the darkness of betrayal. Then Judas, a man who, who knows Jesus well, interrupts the prayer, prayer time. Now, if you've ever tried to pray, uh, you probably know what it's like to have your prayer time interrupted. Maybe your cell phone, you know, goes off, or, or you have to leave, or you just get distracted. We've all had times of prayer interrupted, uh, but none like this. Judas rolls up. Uh, again, a man who Jesus knew, one of his closest friends, a man that he had spent the last three years of his life with, sitting around the campfire and telling jokes and eating with and laughing with and crying with and, and teaching, a man that he considered one of his own. Judas walks up to him with a battalion of soldiers over his left and right shoulders. And in order to identify Jesus to these so soldiers, he, he leans forward, he calls him teacher, and he kisses him on the cheek. The darkness of betrayal. And at this point, the story starts to speed up. The events starts to kind of move pretty quickly. They take Jesus and run off with him. They've arrested him, and they're marching him through the streets of Jerusalem. And most of Jesus' followers just run. They get out of there as soon as they can. One of them, actually, he was running, and a soldier grabbed hold of his shirt, and he just slipped out of the shirt and ran off naked. Most of them just fleed as soon as Jesus got arrested, but not Peter. Peter stayed close. Why? I mean, there's never any telling with Peter. He probably wanted to start a revolution. But when that didn't work, he kind of freaked out a little bit. He kind of didn't know what to do. And so three times, are you noticing a pattern yet? Three times Peter is accused of being associated with Jesus. And three times Peter denies it. He says, no way. Eventually even uttering some choice words in order to reinforce the point. I swear to God, I don't know that man. And we know what this is like more than we'd like to admit. I imagine Peter didn't really realize what was happening at the time, and you probably didn't either. I'm just having a little fun. I'm just going with the flow. I don't want to say anything dumb. I don't want to stand out in some weird way. I don't want people to think I'm some odd. So I wasn't denying Jesus until, well, I kind of realized that I was. I swear I'm not part of Jesus' group. I'm not one of those people. I don't belong to him. And the rooster crows, and Jesus looks over, and Peter's face falls. The darkness of denial. And these denials are actually taking place as Thursday is becoming Friday. It's the middle of the night, the wee hours of the morning. And while this is happening, Jesus is being carted around for these, uh, these, these trials, to stand trial before different religious and political leaders. And it's not even proper to call them trials because nothing resembling justice was happening here. I mean, they had laws about such things. They weren't supposed to, to try someone at night. Well, six times on this night it happened. Oh, well. They weren't supposed to. They, they had these specific guidelines in most cases for how they were supposed to vote. Uh, oh, well. They weren't even supposed to pass a verdict on the day of the trial. They were supposed to go home, think about it, sleep on it, come back, and then pass sentence. Oh, well. I guess following the law doesn't matter when you're defending the law from someone like Jesus. The darkness of injustice. And you know what happens next. This was a very painful Friday. This was a bloody Friday. 
First, you have the scourging. And if you don't know what that is, Jesus was probably placed around a pillar or a tree, and he was tied like this. And then they took this whip that had nine cords on the end of it. And it had little pieces of bone and animal teeth and, and sharp rocks woven into the, to the whip. And they would take this cat of nine tail whip, and they would rake it onto his back, and it would, it would just stick in his flesh. And then they'd yank it off, taking the flesh with him. Jews would, would only, they would never do this more than 39 times. Romans didn't have those principles. We have no idea how many times Jesus was scourged with a whip that tore off his flesh. And then, then comes the purple robe that they put around his shoulders and they press into his wounds and they leave it on just long enough for the blood to start to dry and then they rip it off, taking with it whatever flesh was left. And as if that wasn't enough, they have this crown of thorns. And I'm not just talking about like weaving together some rose bushes. I don't mean the kind of thorns that you touch and bleed and say, ouch. I'm talking about one to two inch thorns woven together, jammed down onto his skull. Then they throw a cross on his shoulder so he can walk it through town, but it doesn't work because at this point he's too beat up to even carry it. So somebody carries it for him and they get to the place and they drop the cross and they drop Jesus on it and then nails pierce his wrists and nails pierce his feet and they lift this thing up, finding the hole in the ground and they drop it. And the sound of the bottom of that wood hits that earth with a thud, but the thud of that cross hitting the ground was no doubt lost in the agonizing noises coming out of Jesus' mouth. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The darkness, the pain. And eventually, on that Friday that we now call good, Jesus did what Jesus came to do. The sky had literally been dark for three hours. And not just because it was nighttime. No, it went dark at noon and stayed dark until 3 p.m., at which point Jesus died. My favorite biography of Jesus, the Gospel of Mark, lets this moment speak for itself. Mark 15, 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The darkness of death. And as for Saturday, well, as for Saturday, there just isn't much to say. It was a day of silence, not because people weren't saying anything. Oh, oh, they were crying out. They were, no doubt, probably either shaking their fists at the heavens, asking God, what are you doing? Or, Or probably hiding in a closet, afraid that the authorities might come find them, or maybe both. And you can relate. God, how can you let this happen to them, to us, to me? What are you doing? Can you even see what's going on down here? Where are you? And on Saturday, God said, nothing. The most deafening darkness of all. The darkness of silence. And in the darkness of Saturday, we realize that there's nothing left for us to do but wait and hope. Wait and hope, knowing that darkness is not the last word. Out of the darkness of guilt, we wait and hope for the light of forgiveness. Out of the darkness of shame, we wait and hope for the light of purification. 
Out of the darkness of depression, we wait and hope for the light of joy. Out of the darkness of despair, we wait for the light of hope. Out of the darkness of failure, we wait for the light of victory. Out of the darkness of chaos, we wait for the light of peace. Out of the darkness of abuse, we wait for the light of love. Out of the darkness of fear, the light of courage. Out of the darkness of betrayal, the light of reconciliation. Out of the darkness of denial, restoration. Out of the darkness of injustice, justice. Out of pain, relief. Out of death, life. Out of silence, resurrection. Out of darkness, light. Thank you for listening to a student ministry sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about the student ministry or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.